Welcome to the EU Startups Podcast. Sit back and enjoy the show hosted by Marcin Lewandowski. Hey everyone, this is Marcin Lewandowski and you're listening to the EU Startups Podcast. Uh, my guest today is Vasco Pedro. Um, he's a forward-thinking entrepreneur with a diverse background in technology and language processing, driven by a long-standing passion for AI. Vasco is a co-founder and CEO of Unbabel, uh, a company that's eliminating language barriers by combining machine, uh, machine translation and human post-editing. Um, they recently announced their new project, Halo, and this, among other things, is what we are going to talk about on the show. Please give it up for Vasco Pedro. Welcome on EU um, Startups Podcast, Vasco. Thank you, Marcin. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome having you. Um, Vasco, so your passion for the future of language interaction is um, evident and contagious. Uh, can you share the defining moment or inspiration that led you to believe that, uh, you know, in the transformative power of combining technology and language to bridge communication gaps? Yeah, absolutely. So my background, as you mentioned, has been always in AI. I started coding very early on and my fascination was primarily with um, intelligence and consciousness and kind of what makes us able to think about stuff. And I always felt the language is a good uh, window for that. Um, and when we started in Babel, we were kind of like at this right timing where this was two generations of AI ago. So it was like for machine translation it was phrase-based MT. And it was becoming to be, you know, it was just starting to be useful in the sense that if you took the output of a machine translation engine and you gave it to a translator, they wouldn't just erase everything most mm -hmm. of the time. Sometimes they still would, right? And and you could see that, okay, well, AI is going to massively increase efficiency in a lot of these processes, but very clearly we're not quite there yet in the sense that you can't just trust an AI to produce content or to translate content. And so you really needed this uh, symbiotic relationship where uh, in initially it was much more of AI superpowering humans. And I think with time, what we're seeing is uh, kind of a, a blend of situations where actually our humans superpowering the AI and training the AI, right? And so this shift that has been happening over the last few years that now with generative AI is accelerating uh, was starting to become evident when we started. And so for me, uh, I think it was uh, understanding how I did the, that process. So I was living in the US uh, and I would get sometimes friends asking me to help translate something and I would go to Google Translate and then like start as a base and then correct it. I was like, okay, yeah, this makes a lot of sense, right? And so what I was feeling was, uh, and, and I think this is much more evident now, AI is essentially a cognitive prosthetic, right? And so it's how do, how do we augment human capabilities by leveraging a lot of different AI technologies? Uh, and translation is one of the areas, right? And so I think that's the path that we're going to see even more over the next few years. Amazing. Um, you know, eliminating language barriers sounds like a superhero mission uh, to me. So how did you initially, you know, envision Unbabel and, and what were some of the biggest challenges you encountered along the way? Uh, we, I believe that um, language barriers are actually underappreciated as a, as a source of problems in the world. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's, uh, we're, we're, we're now faced with a lot of polarizing opinions on everything from politics to climate change to a bunch of things. And I think uh, 
existing in a particular language is a form of reducing yourself to a bubble, right? And I think that it actually happens in the world much more than we think. I mean, even in a in a in a continent like Europe, where you know, if you think the European Union, where there should be a digital uh, market, one single digital market,、mm-hmm. uh, the amount of Shopping, as an example, that happens cross border, is extremely low, right? And so, what you're seeing is people's inabilities to go and shop in another website. And one of the big issues with that is not so much the transfer of goods or shipping of goods, but is actually how to access and interpret and and trust because things are in a different language. You know,、uh, a simple example from Portugal. Until recently, Amazon.、Uh, You needed to go to Amazon Spain or German or、uh, or the UK, and you couldn't search for things in Portuguese. And so, when you're looking for something, how do you even know the name of that thing in a different language? You know, it's really tricky to to search. And so,、mm-hmm. there's a lot of like this very small hidden、uh, things that affect even in a situation that should be easy. But when you project that to Situations where you know、uh, how where do people consume their news? They consume in the websites that are being written in their own language. How do people interact by posting on social networks in their native language? And so you have this effect where you effectively have、um, you know different internets. You have the Chinese internet and the Russian internet, and the Portuguese internet, and the Brazilian internet, and the Ameri- and they're kind of all existing in their little bubbles of how they perceive the world. I think if we can solve language barriers、uh, and we enable people to really Be exposed to different points of views, and we enable businesses to operate in any market. I think that will create massive positive impact in the world. That's amazing.、Um, you know, leading brands like Facebook,、uh, Microsoft, and Booking. dot com、um, use Unbable to enhance customer support. How do you、um, how do you go about building a product that brands love, and what makes a product truly remarkable? Um, I mean, that's a that's a great question. It's very general. I think that、um, when we started, it was about making it extremely seamless. So, in customer service, was really about getting out of the way, right? So, enabling, integrating with、uh, with the tools that agents already use, and then enabling those agents to be able to communicate in a bunch of languages. By not creating any friction, and I think that's true for a lot of products. It's redu- re- reducing friction in a task that someone wants to do. Now, I think、uh, the initially was really about being this hidden layer.、Uh, as we progressed and as we expanded to other use cases,、uh, we started building out what we're calling the language operations platform. And I think、uh, there, it's about how do you create an experience for those who fundamentally really care about language, and that whose daily job is to make all of these processes work, right? And there,、mm-hmm. it's about as with any product, is you need to have insights、uh, about the problem you're trying to solve and about how your users will use, will try to solve that problem using your product, right? It's,、uh, you know, it, it, I think all of us have experienced that sense of when you find something that really Enables you to do something in a really good way, and the experience is delightful, and it doesn't get in your way, and just helps you. I think it, you know, it's kind of a magical moment, and I think the sense of magical interaction, I think, is a key essential part of of product delight and of making a product that that people love. Awesome.、Um, yeah. So we actually mentioned like this correlation between you know the product and technology and people.、Um, so actually balancing the efficiency of machine translation with the human touch. In post editing, sounds like、um, I know trying to mix oil with and water.、Uh, how do you navigate this delicate balance to you know provide a seamless and culturally rich language experience? And、um, 
And, and, and you know, how, how many cups of coffee do you think your team drinks a day to maintain this delicate balance? <laughs> well, I, I, I think I'm... I'm probably one of the one that drinks the most coffee to people, you know, in a bubble. And I try to keep it at five or six a day. So let's see. Uh, but Man, I, I think that, um, I know it's a little bit too much. Um, I, I think that it, it, you know, it's so the, the simplification of the problem is, oh, you have a machine translation engine, you have a person, right? But actually the reality with any of this thing is that when you look under the hood is, there's a lot of degrees of complexity. Like, for example, one of the key differentiators at Babel is a piece of technology we developed, which is also generative AI based uh, at this point, which is quality estimation. And quality estimation, what it tries to do is essentially trying to determine when the output of the machine translation was good or when it wasn't and do we need a human and where do we need a human to come in and fix. Right? Mm -hmm. And so this, uh, the, and, and you're right, and it depends on language pair and content type and a bunch of different variables. So it's not uh, one size fits all where you're like oh send it to google then send it to a person and you're done it's it goes to the 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 specific phrase it goes to the complexity of what you're trying to achieve it goes to what is the target audience and and what is the level of thing you want to do and then also when you balance that with the ability to scale so in babel i think we're on track to do about 5.5 billion words this year something like that hmm. uh of human translation right so it's a lot of words a lot of people and when you scale this there's an operational side of how do you know who is the best human to correct something and how you get exactly. that person available on time so that something happens in minutes rather than hours and it there's a whole complexity there um but it's um but i, I think it's it's kind of the where you know I, i've been saying this when generative ai came around people were like oh wow this, this is going to change everything and we're like actually for translation isn't changing that much because mm -hmm. translation is probably in the area that has been most exposed to ai and what i'm seeing is a bunch of other areas like content creation and we'll see that in every other area right like uh, marketing and law and medical domain the same thing will happen where you'll have AI coming in and starting to progressively help more and create more efficiency and reducing friction. And you'll have this symbiotic relationship between the human and the machine to produce something that is better than what other either can do. Right. So let, let's look Project Halo. Um, so Project Halo is a game changer, you know, allowing communication without speaking or typing. Like, how, how do you see it shaping the future of communication? Yeah, I mean, it started uh, with this idea that in, in this... Uh, in this trend of, uh, so we'll have human and AI, and how do you create this symbiosis, right? How do you mm -hmm. create co uh, cognitive augmentation through AI so that uh, humans can really uh, leverage a lot of the capabilities that are being developed? Um, I think at the, at the core of this is this belief that we are seeing essentially what I call the uber cortex. And, and the way I see it, and it's, I'm, I'm going to oversimplify this, right? But it's this idea that actually you have your limbic system and your neocortex, and they're both part of your brain, but they're actually created over millions of years of evolution. They're actually two different pieces of hardware, let's say. And for us, they're one thing, right? We just think of as ourselves because the connection and integration between the two is extremely you know, robust. Yeah. I think what we're seeing is kind of the emergence of a third part of your brain that happens to 
I think it's going to exist mostly outside of your brain, accessing computational power in other places and ability to do uh, to access capabilities that your biological brain won't be able to do uh, for you. And so we're very, very early in this. Uh, you know, the, part of the reason is we're already interacting with AI, but our interaction with AI is limited in terms of bandwidth. We're interacting through our phones. It's, you know, we speak at 120 words per minute max, but our brains are processing the equivalent of four 4K movies every second, right, of information. So massive difference in bandwidth. And so in this pathway, we said, okay, how do we actually, you know, you have projects like Neuralink, which are doing amazing things, but it's invasive. And we were thinking we wanted to create an interface that wasn't invasive. And so the idea was to create a neural interface and then connect it with uh, an AI, so an LLM, to kind of start uh, accessing those capabilities. Mm -hmm. And as we started exploring, what we realized is we had a lot of intermediate steps. So we're far from getting to a point where, you know, you and I will be using a device like this to do like to you know, to have this conversation using telepathy, which I think we're, you know, it's going to happen in our lifetimes, but we're kind of not there yet. And Mm -hmm. so what we realized is the stage where we were was already particularly useful for people that were experiencing a lot of pain uh, in an immediate uh, situation. Um, If you think about it, patients of ALS, uh, Stephen Hawkins uh, would speak at about two words per minute, right? And, and it's extremely painful. My co-founder's mother, unfortunately, died of ALS. And he can describe like the how in the last stages, it was almost impossible to communicate. It was extremely frustrating. And so what we said is, look, this device, so Halo, where you have this, uh, uh, right now it's an EMG interface uh, that you couple with uh, uh, a LLM that has been trained a lot of information from for the user and so the combination of this means that the patient can actually uh, greatly increase their ability to communicate uh, using a nonverbal mode. Um, so for example if you look at a, a tool for ALS right now you have eye tracking stuff where you have look at different uh, letters to compose words and that's very slow and and sometimes you know if you blink you look you lose track of uh, of 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 place and you have to be focusing on the on the letter you can be looking at the person you're talking to there's a lot of issues that make it in practice really hard to use uh halo at this point enables uh those patients to speak at about 15 words per minute uh mm-hmm. you know like the the eye tracking stuff gets you to about eight seven eight words per minute uh so we're you know already doubling that capacity and then we said, look, this this could have a massive impact right away. And we decided to try it with patients. And the response has been overwhelmingly incredible uh, because you're right. Like when you couple that. So uh, what Halo does is it, it, it uses an EMG interface and an LLM and you can navigate and interact with LLM with the EMG interface. And with that, you can then express what you want to say in a fully completed sentence. And in many cases, because we have voice samples of the of the person before they lost their ability to speak we can actually train uh, a, a synthesis that sounds like them right so they're actually speaking in a voice that's very similar to them mm-hmm. to their families and i think that's uh that's i mean and it's interesting it's two different types of product where you know you have really consumer product potential and i think the way consumers interact with products is that kind of delight but in this case it's it's life-changing for a lot of these people. So it's like you can see this pain and people being able to regain their communication when they're completely locked in is, uh, you know, it's emotionally uh, very intense, but in a very fulfilling way. 
This is amazing, man.、Uh, so you actually kind of answer my、uh, next question because I was just about to ask you if you could, you know, dive into a technical aspect of how Project Halo transforms this、uh, bioelectrical signals into language, and then like about its potential applications, you know, that you foresee beyond language translation. But I think you already covered that pretty, pretty,、um, pretty much, and it's very inspiring. Yeah, I mean.、Uh, what- One thing that might be worth saying, because when people hear this, they're like, "Oh my God!" You know, a machine that reads thoughts, right? And that's not what's going on here. I know it's、yeah. like when you see it, it looks it, it looks a little like magic, right? It's like it's like I'm just thinking and the machine is speaking. But actually, what's going on is it's it, you know the way I think about it is a bit like we we can be thinking a lot of things, but we decide what we verbalize, right? So、mm-hmm. our verbal communication means. You know, is just a communication channel that we choose to use、right. to express certain things. And what it, this does is it creates another communication channel that you can choose to engage with.、Um, this first version, the one that we have right now being used for patients, is fairly simple. So it, what it does is, when you send me a message, my、uh, my personally trained LLM is trying to come up with answers that. That I could be answering,、uh, based on my preferences and what it knows about me, and then I'm using、uh, an EMG sensor to be able to navigate and interact with it, right? And saying yes, this is the one, no, go in that direction, kind of thing. So it's not that difference between,、uh, in essence, the ability to control a, you know, a wheelchair、uh, by using EMG sensors.、Yeah. The new version that we have. Starts enabling you to type things, right? So、mm-hmm. type things with your mind, which is important when you want to initiate a conversation, when you want to specifically direct the LLM for a particular thing. The LLM does a lot of the heavy lifting, right? So if you want to answer something like, "Oh, I, what do you want to eat?" "Oh, I like to eat meat." You just have to type "meat," and the LLM then will expand it to a fully fledged sentence, right? So you don't have to type a lot of these things. So that that's kind of the path. Uh, I think it's it, you know like there's a lot of stuff that we、uh, need to improve and want to improve. For example, what we want to get to is EEG.、Uh, EEG would bypass muscle signals completely, and so I think、uh, that would be、uh, beneficial. Non-invasive EEG creates a lot of noise, so we're working on kind of denoising models with AI, which kind of would be cool. So there's a lot of experimentation still, right? Like we're,、mm-hmm. it's been one of the challenges we've been having overwhelming request amount of requests. Obviously, from patients,、uh, but we have a limited capacity right now to to be able to operate with those, like to actually support those those patients. We're trying to get there as soon as possible. We also need to keep experimenting and developing it because we're still in the beginning. Yeah, I love it.、Um, so beyond Unbabel.、Um... You've, you know, contributed to the business community by serving on the financial board of、uh, Beta Eye and、uh, mentoring at the Foundry Institute. How has your,、uh, you know, involvement in this initiative shaped your、um, perspective as an entrepreneur? And and maybe, like, what piece of advice do you find yourself sharing with aspiring founders the most? Um, I, I've I've always, you know, it's always been important for me to. Help the community.、Um, when I and my co-founder, I mean, we both met when we came back to Portugal after living abroad for a while, both、mm-hmm. in the U.S. So I, I did my PhD at Carnegie Mellon in the U.S. and he、uh, did his PhD at UPenn in Pennsylvania,、um, and so we had been exposed to different environments, and we wanted to、uh, help. Kind of ignite the startup ecosystem in Lisbon, and so that was always a bit of a dream.、Um, I've, I've, I try to help whenever I can. I mean, whether because I'm officially in boards or mentoring, but even if not, like whenever you know, whenever someone needs something and I can, like I'm happy to help. 
I think I find that the advice that I give to a Portuguese startup tends to be different in a little bit than what I would give to a startup in San Francisco. If you're starting a, a startup in San Francisco, you already are in the hub, right? You already are in the place where you're going to have maximal uh, capability of connections, you know, maximal probability of access to funding. So it's more about, you know, the typical kind of YC uh, combinator advice of, hey, you know, how do you build something people want? You know, how do you find your users? How, like, you know, don't focus on the bullshit, just focus on building something that's really valuable. In Portugal, there's in addition to that, uh, a kind of a push towards, look, Portugal is a very small market. You cannot think about Portugal as a market from the beginning. You got to really think global. And there is still, especially in early stages, a strong uh, benefit from being in the hubs and creating the network that will support you. That network will be investors, other co-founders, uh, um, you know, mentors, customers, like where are those people? And if your customers aren't in Portugal, which they shouldn't, if you're starting a, you know, a, a tech startup, right. then you need to be where they are. Right. And I mm -hmm. think that's been lately something that I found myself engaging with, which is this dichotomy of, you know, we live in a world where theoretically everything is potentially remote. I mean, we're having a interview here and, and it's true. Technically you can, and some startups thrive, but others, you really like benefit from being in a place where the hub is right so yeah. like for example investors still like to be able to have contact especially early stage investors they still draw mostly from their networks right and their networks are driven by the connections that they have that at some mm -hmm. point require kind of physical interaction and so sometimes kind of I think before it was very established that you a bit like Israel you'd start a startup here but you'd go away right you'd be like great we have tech teams here now the front office go be in San Francisco or New York or London I think now there's a bit of more uh, hesitancy of, of doing that because like now we can do everything remote and you can but I think it adds another layer of complexity so sometimes navigating those waters right it's like you know how do it, it, it one of the biggest advices that Paul Graham used to say was it's easy to play start to play house in a startup you know you raise a bit of money and you're like suddenly focusing on culture and focusing on you know how to have a cool office and yeah. and I'm not saying those things aren't important but they're secondary importance versus actually building something and figuring out your product market fit right that that should be everything in the beginning amazing um, Vasco We're getting to the over of this, um, to the end of this interview. Uh, so maybe looking ahead, you already mentioned a bit about it, but maybe you can add something to this. Looking ahead, what's your vision for the you know role of technology in fostering global communication, and what other like you know broader societal changes do you hope to see as language barriers continue to break down? Um, I I think that we are still in the beginning of enabling worldwide access to multilingual information. I, I think sometimes people feel like, wait, didn't we solve translation already? But you, you, if you look at the amount of products and services that are digital and that should be available in a bunch of languages mm -hmm. that aren't, right? It's still a massive pain. Like the amount of websites, to name an example, that are in all the languages you know, it's very, very few. I mean, you, you have massive corporations like Microsoft and Google and others that invest, you know, a lot of money on trying to make this available in a bunch of languages. Everyone else struggles with it. So we're still in the beginning of this. I think the only way we're going to get to a point where 
you know, from a, a access to information and access to uh, goods and services is the same whether I'm here or I'm in Uganda or I'm in Brazil or I'm in Japan or the US is going to be through massive deployment of AI in all of these areas. And we're very early in that. I think, um, and, and I think the impact of, of that is, um, you know, sometimes I like to say uh, most of the world knows famous American singers but very few people know famous American, famous Chinese singers, right? And yet there is way more Chinese than American, right? right? There's more Chinese speakers than English speakers. And I think this is one example or, or, or writers, you know, how many famous Chilean writers do we know or famous Ugandan writers, right? And on average, you'd think that there's probably a certain ratio of good writers per number of people. So you should know more, right? So I think what we'll see in the world is uh, if product market fit is what we're trying to get, even if you're a writer or a content creator, expanding massively the market would mean there will be more voices, more diversity, more access to different points of view, uh, ability to no matter where you are, whether you're in Africa or Europe or South America or Asia, you have access to people that will connect to, with what you're saying, with what you're creating, with what you're selling, with what you're producing. Um, and I think that part is going to be very interesting. It's a bit like the debate on whether generative AI will kill the movie industry or massively expand it. Right? And I think we're, we're going to see that. I think, it, it, you know, in, in the past, if you take something like Indress Revolution, absolutely for uh, shoemakers, they were very scared. It's like, wait, you know, maybe my shoes are going to be less valued. But there's more people making shoes and more people, can, you know, buying shoes than there were before. Right? Before people would have one pair of shoes that would last them 10 years. And now people have more right? they have more variety and access to things. And I think and the level of shoes on average is probably better. Right. And I think that we'll see the same with movies and that, that would probably books be true and, if they lasted for yes. 10 years. But well, then. they would often go back and 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 like refitted them, right? Yeah. Uh, but they were not very beautiful or not very. They were just practical boots. There you go. You have a pair of solid boots to take you with, right? Now we have you know sneakers and fancy shoes and all sorts of different things, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I think we're going to see an explosion of different types of content, but at a level we're seeing that a little bit already. Like if you think about, we're saying we're in a golden age of TV shows, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if you compare, I don't know if you ever go back and watch TV shows of the eighties, which some of them were like, I loved. And now I look back, it's like, wow, production quality really changed, right? Now every basic Netflix TV show is like amazing compared to an eighties massive production, right? With yeah. very, very few exceptions. And I think that will be the case too. I mean, right now, only blockbuster, like Hollywood blockbusters can reach, you know, like Mission Impossible has this kind of like visual effect. And if you'd go to an indie production, they don't have budget. But what will happen is an indie, indie production will look like a, you know, a Hollywood blockbuster a few years from now and will tell, will enable, uh, 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 creators to tell their stories in much more compelling ways. So I, I'm, you know, I tend to be optimist about the future, uh, and I think that's going to be an interesting time to live. Amazing! I love, I love this. I love your vision, man. And um, so, besides, like, when you're done to actually uh, engage in, you know, the future of language, and um, you know, breaking down the, the the barriers of language. So, what is what is Vasco Pedro all about? And since you already mentioned some TV shows, like what's your favorite TV show from the 80s? My, well, from the 80s, uh, Seinfeld was 90s, uh, 80s, Knight Rider, probably. Uh, I really like Knight Rider and um, mm. uh, the A-Team, which was all, you know, late 70s. 
Um, I mean, some of the ones that come to mind. But my favorite TV shows of all time are probably Mad Men, The Wire, Sopranos, Breaking Bad, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Um, though now, if you look at Game of Thrones and others, right, there's, that's the counterpart is like, if, when you have, um, scarcity of resources also creates attention, right? And so mm-hmm. I think when you have one great show and everyone, everything else kind of sucks, that one stands out, right? Yeah. I think now it's harder to send out because everything is really good. Like not everything, but there's more shows that are just really good with great story and great visual effects and great plot twists. And I mean, the, um, Uh, Yellowstone uh, like recently like I love that show and it's like you know the western new western type of thing mm-hmm. and it's yeah like Sopranos in the in the in the you know in the modern cowboy world it's kind of yeah. cool like so there's a lot of different different TV shows what I'm all about I that's that's a very uh, that's a question I think of about a lot of a lot of the time I, I think I, I more and more I think being authentic to who you are is important and being more of me more of the time is is something that i've um you know that i i you know i i i take better care of myself i think it's important to uh to kind of have a productive impact in the world but ultimately the thing that really drives me is is kind of changing things in the world that i think could be changed you know it's building the future that that's really in the end when i'm like how much would i be willing to sacrifice to build the future and i think a lot right so i think we all living in this world of you know uh work life balance and kind of like hedonistic um ability to kind of uh enjoy moments and people and connections and relationships and and i think those are all super important and they make us happy but this dichotomy of uh you know is happiness the main driver for when you want to try and change the world should that be the goal or not and you know like is should happiness be a guarantee or just the the guarantee should be the right to pursue happiness right mm-hmm. i don't know like those are all philosophical questions that i'm quite uh, excited about awesome Vasco. thanks so much for this interview i thoroughly enjoyed it uh, lovely meeting you and i wish you all the best with your endeavors and um yeah talk to you soon thank you marcin it was a pleasure